0: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Kimberly Atkins-Store, Jill Winebanks, and me, Barb McQuaid. Joyce is away this week. I wonder who's watching the chickens. <laughs> I'm sure they're fine. Those are some
1: independent chickens. Uh, they're fine.
0: Chicken sitter or a uh, chicken uh, kennel. they have those things? I don't know if they have those
2: things, but chickens are known for sitting on eggs, so maybe they take care of themselves.
0: All right. Well... I'm sure they'll they'll be fine, Joyce. No worries. (laughs) Um, On with the show. Today, we'll be talking about the tragic shooting in Highland Park, the latest in the January 6th investigation, and the resignation of Boris Johnson. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Uh, Before we get started, I want to ask each of you your views on two words that I notice becoming more popular in common conversations. And those are the F word and the B word. Now this is a family podcast and I don't want us to lose our non-explicit rating, especially now that we are a top three podcast on the Apple charts. Um, so I will refer to them as the F word and the B word. But I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, in the January 6th testimony, we keep hearing these Trump administration officials who are using the F word, right? Um, uh, Pat Cipollone was uh, y- used it. Uh, you know, if we F and go up to the Capitol, we're going to be charged with every F and crime imaginable. And um, the other guy, is it Eric? Eric Hershon. Eric Hershon Eric- <laughs> says it about every other word. Um <laughs> I, I also see more and more people on social media using the phrase AF to emphasize a point um, Or the B word to suggest like domination over someone, you know, like, hey, B, I'm going to do this to you. Um, I actually object to both terms, not because I'm a prude, maybe I am, uh, but I have been known to perhaps utter both of those words in a moment of weakness. Um, But I I try not to, because I find both terms not only to be crass and to sound ignorant, but to be misogynistic. To my ear, when someone uses those words, I hear the voice of a middle schooler trying to shock With the new word, they've just learned to get your attention. To me, it demonstrates a weak vocabulary. You really couldn't think of anything else to show me that you really, really mean it. Um, But as I said, I also find both words to be misogynistic. I mean, doesn't the F word mean forcible rape? Uh, Doesn't the B word compare a woman to a dog? Why are we normalizing these words? And so I'd be interested in your thoughts. Well, let me
2: start. Um, I grew up in an era where girls, which is what we were called, would never say those words and would have been highly insulted at anyone doing it. And then I became a prosecutor and found that in order to be part of the group, I almost had to say things like that. Mm. The agents all used words like that. And I got so used to it that it stopped bothering me. The first time that it was called to my attention was right after Title III had become law, al- allowing legal wiretaps. And because it was used for organized crime, and I was in the organized crime section, the head of the section was playing a tape, one of the very first recordings ever under Title III. And as he started to put the tape machine on, and in those days it was those old-fashioned reel-to-reel tapes, he stopped and looked at me and said, Oh Jill, we'd all understand if you'd like to leave there's some pretty harsh language on this. And I said <laughs> I've heard worse in my sorority house. And of course I w- there was no way I was leaving the room to put it mildly. But yeah, it it's always been an issue. I don't I I would say it's not a normal part of my vocabulary, but I have I have never I don't think I've ever said the B word. But I certainly have said the F word, and to me, it is almost like—and I don't know if we can say this—the D word, um, as in we um, get it, as in what what keeps water behind. uh, We get it. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I I I do sometimes say it, and I'm I'm not offended when someone says that anymore. Uh, The B word is different.
0: Yeah, and I think those words are very different from the um, the object that keeps water behind, uh, <laughs> because of their connotation. What, how about you, Kim?
1: So I, I thought about this. I I will preface this by saying I'm just not a big swearer. I just didn't. For no, I, I don't mind people who are. Um, I, I just for whatever reason I don't swear. That often. That being said, to your point, I would just I would just say Barb. At the end, when you um, were saying that you connotated the f word with rape, I never have. Maybe some people yeah. do, and that's just I just took it as a a word for a consensual <laughs> physical function. Um, but if if some people do, then then I will respect that. Um, as for the f word. I guess this isn't something new for me in that covering being a reporter in Washington. I can I could name a double-digit number of elected officials in the House and Senate who I've heard drop the F-bomb, men and women. Like, it's not um, a, a gender difference there. It's something that's pretty common here. So I've just become more or less immune to it, even if I don't see it very often, unless I, you know, stub my toe or... Um, You know, the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. I think I said it then. Um, But it's just not part of my uh, vernacular. AF is different. AF is a colloquial term that is cultural to me. And I don't think... It doesn't even sound like a swear to me. It just sounds like a punctuation about someone. Because usually when somebody is talking about that, they are talking about their convictions. They're talking about something that is really meaningful... And it sounds to me more like a punctuation than a swear. But the B word, I will say that I use. I use it affectionately with my friends. Um, I use it in the Lizzo way, you know, I just took a DNA test, turns out I'm 100%, like, in an empowering way. Like, yes, I am that girl. Um, And I claim that, and I think a lot of times, particularly with terms that have been specifically used against women in a way that is pejorative, to put them down. Because, you know, when women are called bees, it's usually for the same qualities that men are called ambitious or forthright or, you know, hard-hitting or whatever. Um, and we can take that word and turn it on its head and use it as empowering to say, yes, I'm absolutely that. If you're referring to that as me, yes, it's because I'm a powerful woman in charge and you're absolutely right. And so in that sense, I do use it. And I, I think there's a way to reclaim things that have been used, weaponized against us to take that power away. Um, so I, I make no I make no apologies for using that.
2: I agree with you, Kim, on that. And I actually was a character in a novel called, I think it was called Watergate, a novel by Thomas
0: Milan. Wait, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. What? <laughs> you know, every week Jill reveals some new <laughs> wrinkle So from this her was different You were a character when, in a novel? And it this this relates to this conversation? different than when you were a comic. Well, I
2: mean, it was, it was, it's called Watergate, a novel, and it's <laughs> the real Watergate characters. I mean, you know, yeah. but, but it's a made-up story. And um, this is not which, the comic strip that
1: you're in. This is different. No,
2: not the comic strip in which I was. Yes, that's the other thing. But <laughs> um, and when I saw it, I, I I mean, I'm called the B word in it. And mm. I was proud to be the B word. Yes. Especially because I had my own book coming out. So it's not a bad thing to have that kind of publicity when your own book is coming out. But no, I, I agree with you on that. On the other hand, I would never use it in the way, for example, that Eric Hershorn did which was as part of a deposition, I would have cleaned that up because I think it makes you look less serious, more of a jokester when you're saying, I'm gonna give you the best effing advice you've ever gotten, get yourself the best effing lawyer. That sounds to me not like serious White House counsel advice. And so I would not use it in that context. Um, And and it doesn't add to the advice he gave. So that's one difference I would have. But saying it to myself, if I stub my toe, yes, I do that. Or when I hear about bad decisions from the Supreme Court, yeah, I might say that, the F word.
0: Well, I'm curious. Maybe our listeners can share their views. I I, I don't think of it, uh, myself at least, as pearl-clutching over the word. I just think to the extent (laughs) we've often talked about, say this and not that, that these are words that demean women And if you want to add emphasis to your word, there's always very, very, you know, really, really, I really, really mean it in um, other ways to deal with it. But I think, um, Kim, your uh, reappropriation um, concept is interesting. I've always thought of the B word as being equivalent to a dog, which is a very demeaning thing, but I suppose to the extent it means a uh, a tough woman, then, you know, I'm, I'm proud to claim that title as well. Well, And
2: I'm proud to be affiliated with my dog, and I know that Kim <laughs> would be too, so there's oh, nothing
1: all my dogs have been male, yes. but I, yes, I am a friend. I'm Boogie. <laughs> join it too. The B boogie word is brisby. Boogie. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> So Independence Weekend this year was rocked by violence that sadly is becoming more and more of an American norm. And one of the most heartbreaking incidents was in Highland Park, Illinois, where seven people were killed and scores more were injured when a shooter opened fire during the town's July 4th parade. I will continue our practice on this podcast of not naming perpetrators of such terror. So Jill, I want to start with you. This happened in a community that you know very well. First, how are you doing and what are your reflections on what happened? It is a wonderful community
2: that is part of my life it's maybe 10 miles or less from my house and it's somewhere that i have shopped i have spoken at political rallies in port clinton square which is right where this happened and i have many friends who live there and i know people who were shot one who died and when Uh i say i know i i know them through friends Not personally. Um, And even though the woman who found the McCarthy's two year old roaming around and got him to the police. um, It's a horrible tragedy. And when you hear all the facts about this episode, in a state that has very strict gun control laws, Highland Park bans assault weapons. So he was not even allowed to legally possess them in the town where he committed this crime. And he lived a few blocks from that as a child, although it appears that he was now living in the next town over Highwood um, with his father at the time. His parents were, were separated. He is someone who had come to police attention on multiple occasions who was reported under our red flag law um, as a clear and present danger, but was able to get the firearm owner's ID card because his father vouched for him even though he was under 21 and even though he had threatened to kill everyone. Uh, now, his father, who ran for mayor of Highland Park, says he didn't know that his son had done that, even though he is the one who went to the police station to get back the confiscated knives and dagger and sword that had been taken from the Highland Park home of his mother, where the son was living at the time? Um, and, Barb, I just want to say I've been in touch now with Every Town, which is an amazing advocacy group for guns, about what I can do to help and what Illinois could do to have a law similar to the Michigan law that allowed the arrest of the parents, because clearly, in my mind, the father has some responsibility for getting the uh, card which is essential to buying a gun in Illinois for his son. And I'm very encouraged by some of the things they're doing, but I also, in talking to them, realize how almost impossible it is unless you ban the total sale of these, Um, and in Highland Park it is, you can't buy or possess an assault weapon. Um, It's going to be a really tough job to fix the laws to make the um, red flag law even be usable as a way to protect people.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about those laws. And you were talking about in Michigan, that was the, the charges that were brought against the parents in that awful Oxford, Michigan shooting. Um, that you were referring to. And so, Barb, we've talked a lot about gun laws here, you know, including the recent bipartisan effort from Congress, the first uh, gun control law that's been passed here in Washington in a long time. We'll talk more about red flags later, but will that, would that law, that law passed by Congress, have stopped the shooter in this case?
0: It's not clear. I think the best answer is probably not um you know it's got a red flag provision but all that allows is for parents or family members or people who are aware of an issue to petition a court to prevent someone from getting a gun or having a gun taken away. And it doesn't sound like his family was interested in preventing him from getting a gun. It sounds like they were interested in just the opposite of vouching for him so that he could get a gun. The law also has enhanced background checks, which could have turned up some evidence of this prior incident when police came to his home when he said he was going to kill people and had knives that were taken from him. So that one provision could have, but it's not clear whether those records would have been uh, exposed under the law because they were juvenile court records. So not really clear but let me say a couple of things about that. Um I think number 1 um and, and I love to look for these things um argument techniques that people use all the time and this is one um that I would say you, just because it can't solve the whole problem doesn't mean it doesn't help. So, for example, sometimes, you know, when, when people were talking about legalizing seatbelts, they'd say, see, seatbelts wouldn't have stopped that car, fatal car accident because the car you know blew up or whatever it was. Therefore, there's no need for seatbelt laws. Well, that's not the case, of course. It may not solve every crime, but if it can reduce them, that makes it better. The other point I would make with this is I think it demonstrates why the bill that was passed most recently is a good start, but only a good start, and that we do need to uh, ban assault weapons. There is no good reason to have uh, weapons of war on the streets. Um, by having this high-powered uh, gun, he was able to fire off, I don't know, what, 70, 70 shots in a very short period of time and still you know, get away. Um, it, it allows maximum damage, so I think uh, this law helps, but does not go
1: far enough to preventing these kinds of tragedies. So, Jill, getting back to this idea of red flag laws, I, I thought of that when I after this happened, and I thought, okay, what could have prevented that? Um, and I thought, okay, red flag laws seems to be exactly what situations like this are designed to address. But I know that even some states that have them, like M- Massachusetts has a red flag law, the people there have told me, well, one of the problems is people don't even know that they exist. So you can't report someone if you don't know that they exist. And there's this other thing that um, you and Barb point out, is that in this case, it seemed that the people who are able to re- make this petition, which are usually family members, weren't interested here. Um, and then I learned that Illinois has a red flag law. So why don't you think it worked here? Now, I know I've always wondered if it should be, if red flag laws should be a little broader to at least allow, I don't know, school officials or um, uh, people in the care, uh, maybe mental health care providers to also be a report to be able to petition if they see evidence, if family members might be reluctant to do that. Why don't you think the red flag law worked here?
2: For exactly the reasons that you and Barb have mentioned, the family uh, uh, supported his getting the firearm owner's ID card. They were not willing to report. He, he, The police came once when he was suicidal. They came a second time when he had threatened to kill everybody. And some unidentified person, because it's redacted, reported that, and the police came to make a wellness check, and the family said, oh, you know, he's getting mental health treatment, don't worry about it. And they refused to file charges or to do anything. And that left the police unable to do anything. So your question is a good one. Should the police, in a case like that, be able to do more in terms of reporting it to prevent getting an FOID card, or being able to purchase any additional guns after that episode, of course that raises other issues of constitutional rights of due process, et cetera, And it's going to be a hard balance. That's why I said I, I'm admiring of what every town is doing, and think that it's important that they keep working on this. Um, I, I even asked them, and they said, mm, they didn't know they were going to have to check, whether because he had a driver's license that said Highland Park and it is illegal to possess a assault weapon in Highland Park, whether a licensed dealer could be in trouble for selling it to someone whose ID says that they live in a town where it's illegal to own such a a firearm. And he's, they said they would get back to me and I will report out to our listeners once I get the answer to that, Um, you know, Could the DA have indicted somebody, uh, taken some action? No, they needed a complainant, and there was no one willing to complain. So red flag laws need to be stretched without infringing on other freedoms, you know, right against searches, et cetera, and due process, if they're going to be useful at all. Uh, Otherwise, it's just not going to work. And there were so many signs in the case of this particular shooter Uh, Today's Chicago Tribune had something I hadn't seen before. Someone had drawn on the back of his Highland Park home a picture of a a figure in camouflage holding a rifle with a smiley head with drippy eyes. Um, That's a pretty severe warning to me. And then, of course, all of his rapper videos our warnings, and then you combine it with his saying, I'm going to kill everyone, and his possession of knives, and then he had two assault weapons. So I think the laws obviously need to be changed, and I personally, of course, would be for a total nationwide ban on assault weapons and high-capacity cartridges and the type of bullet that he used, which literally uh, one of the people who's related to a friend of mine who was shot in the foot. It was basically totally destroyed because it exploded. She will be in the hospital for at least another two weeks. She's had three surgeries already and has been transferred to a higher level hospital now um, for um, for further treatment. I mean, these are horrible bullets. These are not designed except for war. And there's no reason why any American citizen Who's just a citizen needs to have them, period. End of sentence.
1: Yeah, Jill, I would agree with you that weapons of war, things that we don't need for hunting, that we don't need for self uh, defense, uh, really should be outlawed. And um, my and um, condolences to your friend and, and wishes for a speedy recovery. It's really a horrible situation. So, Barb, you know, I can't help but think, as we're talking about solutions and laws that can be passed and things that can be done to address this, do we have any sense that even if legislation is passed to strengthen gun laws in a way that would have an impact and prevent things like this, that the Supreme Court won't just if they're challenged, uh, side with a challenger? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. You know, I
0: think before the Bruin decision, which was decided just a couple of weeks ago, or maybe before the Heller decision, which was decided about 10 years ago, the question would be, would this violate the Second Amendment? And my answer would be, uh, absolute no. That there are always, um, you know, first I would say it's not part of a well-regulated militia, but we know that the court has sort of written that clause out of it and made it a personal right. But even there, I would point to the language that Justice Scalia used in the Heller decision, deciding that the right to bear arms is a personal right about 10 years ago, where he said, however, there is an exception. It is not a right to possess any gun whatsoever in any manner whatsoever in any place wheresoever, you know, suggesting that there are certain sensitive places and situations where gun rights could be restricted. Um, But now, you know, the Bruin court uh, case just recently um, struck down the state of New York's rule about requiring licenses for people to carry uh, and requiring them to show a good reason why they want to carry firearms, that that violated the Second Amendment. So we know what does violate the Second Amendment, and I think we still need to know exactly where that line goes. I mean, I would most certainly say that uh, you can say we can ban certain kinds of weapons, assault weapons. We did from 1994 to 2004. They were illegal. I prosecuted those kinds of cases. We've had other kinds of uh, um, components on guns that have been banned. So these high capacity magazines, I think, could be banned. Things like um, these, you know, background checks and red flag laws most certainly should be. But I've lost a little confidence, frankly, in the integrity of the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. Uh, <laughs> yeah, imagine that. You know, after the Dobbs case and the Bruin case and some of the others that we've seen recently with this supermajority and their willingness to kind of disregard precedent to advance um, what appears to be a very conservative agenda. You know, Justice Thomas, man, he loves his guns. Um, He has written a number of cases, decisions on gun rights. And he's constantly saying things like it's a second, it shouldn't be a second-class right uh, and then proceeds to talk about why it's so paramount. So I don't know where he gets the idea that it's a second-class right, but I guess the idea that it can be restricted. So I don't have confidence in what the court will do. I think they've become less predictable. I think one of the reasons we have precedent is to improve clarity and so that we can predict how a court might rule on certain things. But I think that's gone out the window with the Bruin case and the Heller decision.
2: Last week was busy for the January 6th committee, and I expected the July 4th holiday to be a relaxing time, but it certainly wasn't. They were busy using the momentum of Cass Hutchinson's testimony to wrangle Pat Cipollone to sit for a video deposition happening as we record this. And according to their public statements, many other witnesses are now coming forward or coming back with clearer, fuller memories than they had when they were first interviewed And the DA in Georgia, in Fulton County, Fannie Willis, was just as busy. She subpoenaed Senator Lindsey Graham, Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, John Eastman, Kenneth Chesborough, Cletta Mitchell, all of whom are believed to have knowledge of Trump's attempts to tamper with the election process in battleground states such as Georgia. The conservative pundit Jackie Pick Deason was also subpoenaed. So let's look at what all this means. Barb, I'm going to start with you and tell us, who is Pat Cipollone? Why is he important to the January 6th committee investigation and to the Department of Justice's investigation? What do you expect him to testify about? And does he have any privilege issues?
0: Well, you may recall Pat Cipollone from the um, impeachment hearings. He was a defense attorney because he's White House counsel for Donald Trump, in, I think, both of his impeachments. Um, And so now he's back in this other role. And the reason he's important to the January 6th committee is that he was at the heart of all of these conversations as these plans were going back and forth about how to uh, undermine the certification of the election on January 6th. Um, I think that he can testify about a number of things. You know, he does have, I think, some arguable claims of privilege, Both executive privilege, because he is the White House counsel, and attorney-client privilege, because he represents the president. Though it is the office of the presidency and not Donald Trump the man, um, and you have to distinguish between those two things. I think that if the committee really wanted to push him and litigate this, they could probably overcome these privilege claims through things like qualified privilege, that the interest in determining what happened on January 6th is more important than protecting the privilege, uh, that the attorney-client privilege doesn't apply here because there were third parties present, uh, to the extent that it was done to uh, advance a crime or fraud. I think there are a number of ways, and to the extent uh, it was Donald Trump the man and the candidate acting and not uh, Donald Trump in his role, in his duties as the president. But nonetheless, to avoid the delay that would no doubt result from litigating those issues, he and the committee negotiated and came up with an agreement about what he would and would not testify to. And so there are four areas he agreed to testify to. Uh, one is meetings involving John Eastman, the architect of this you know, whole plan to throw out the electors of certain states that uh, that Trump lost. Conversation was with members of Congress, which would not be subject to any privilege, but could expose some plots uh, involving, you know, um, Jim Jordan and uh, Kevin McCarthy or Andy Biggs or any of these uh, uh, members of Congress who might have been involved. Um, the events of January 6th uh, are fair game for testifying. And then also this meeting that occurred on January 3rd between Trump and high-level members of the Justice Department, this kind of showdown Uh, that um, Cipollone referred to as a murder-suicide pact, where Trump was talking about firing the acting attorney general and replacing him with Jeffrey Clark, who wanted to advance this theory uh, and and state falsely that there had been irregularities found in the elections of certain states and suggesting that those states reconvene their legislatures for the purpose of selecting alternate slates of electors. So those four topics, they have agreed not to ask him questions about any of his conversations with Donald Trump. And that's a shame because I think that would be a place where you could really um, a a deep mine of of golden nuggets that uh, they won't touch. Though they can always come back for more if they find a need for it and litigate it. So what I expect him to talk about and I imagine that they they got some some good information there.
2: I was just going to say I agree Barb that they are it's sort of like the gun laws. It's a good start. I personally would take him to court because I think this is a clear loser on the privilege issues and that he would have to make full disclosure and that he is in a position to do so. Um, his ethics as a lawyer require him to do it, and there's nothing in it in the ethics rules that would bar him from doing it, and I don't think any of the privileges would apply. So I'm hoping they got a lot of helpful information. I hope they got confirmation of some of Cassidy Hutchison's testimony as well, and that they will pursue this even further.
1: Kim, did you want to say something? Well, I was just going to say, I think so— uh, Pat Cipollone was in negotiation with the committee even before Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. And what I suspect that that was about was trying to figure out some sort of agreement when it comes to privilege. Because even if you I think you're by and large right, I think that there in terms of executive privilege, that's really a, a, a non-starter because the executive privilege belongs to the president in office and Biden has waived that. When it comes to attorney-client privilege, I think there could be some privileges there. As to the presidency, not to Donald Trump, as Barb correctly pointed out. But that would need to be, even if he's doing it the correct way, he's showing up and assuming, asserting uh, any privilege to each question as it's presented. But that would need to be litigated and that could take time. And what I suspect is what happened is that there was an agreement. Um, between the committee members who understand that time is of the essence and Cipollone, okay. who understands that it's in his interest to cooperate, to figure out, okay, I will talk about these things, I won't talk about those things, but that the committee can will be able to um, do things, including corroborate what Cassidy Hutchinson said publicly. Um, and, and that's what I'm suspecting is happening here.
2: So let's move to the other big news from the January 6th committee, which is, There's now a hearing scheduled for next Tuesday morning starting at 10 a.m. Eastern, and I'm hearing rumors that it could be something that's going to last all day, and there's also another rumor that there's going to be a Thursday night primetime hearing. What are you hearing, Kim, about both of these in terms of topics and witnesses?
1: Yeah, so it, it certainly is fluid, particularly as to the Thursday event. What I'm assuming is some of the things we may see, just as we've seen from the committee before, them playing clips of testimony that was recorded um, to show publicly. I'm not sure that they will have another witness centered day, such as the one they had with Cassidy Hutchinson. But I am I wouldn't be surprised if we see some of the recorded Uh, testimony from Pat Cipollone, especially since the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony was so powerful and impactful, and he is a key witness to what she testified to, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some of that. And that's really important. It's important to see people like Hutchinson and Cipollone, because these are people that were within Trump world. These are not Democrats that are, you know, can just be cast aside for saying, no, this is a political um, you know, witch hunt or whatever. These are people that were within Donald Trump's inner circle who were there working in support of his administration who are now testifying as to what they see. And I think that that is some of the most important testimony that we'll see out of that. So I wouldn't be surprised, but um, we don't know for sure exactly what these hearings will bring. But so far, it seems that this committee has not wasted time, that they have not... um, um, dilly dallied when it came to their moment to have the nation's attention. And they've been very focused, very aware about the narrative, and it's been very powerful so far. So I suspect the two days next week will be the same. And Barb, let's talk about um, the district
2: attorney in Fulton County, who, as I mentioned, has been busy and has issued a lot of subpoenas. Um, Many think that her case is the one that's most likely to result in a criminal charge against the former president. Um, what do you think?
0: Yeah, she's um, been um, in the public eye and not shrinking from it by any means. Um, uh, Fani Willis uh, has publicly subpoenaed some people. And now one thing that's really interesting to point out is we know the names of the people she has subpoenaed, because the the legal structure in Georgia is different from the federal system. In Georgia, she had to go to the court to request permission and, and explain the basis for seeking the testimony of these witnesses. So there are public court orders that reveal their names. That's how we know who is testifying there. Whereas in the federal system, the rules provide for secrecy of grand jury witnesses. So it could be that people are testifying in the federal grand jury, and we just don't know about it yet seems like we would probably hear some motions to quash and other things if that were happening, but, uh, but the rules are different. And so in Georgia, we know quite well who she has subpoenaed, and you name those people at the top. They include Senator Lindsey Graham and Rudy Giuliani, um, as well as John Eastman, so some pretty big names there. And um, it's interesting, you know, she with a grand jury subpoena, I think there won't be messing around the way there was with Congress. Uh, If they refuse to testify, she has some options. She can immunize them, which kind of is a trump card to Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. It says, I'm not going to use your statement against you. Now you don't have a Fifth Amendment right to worry about. So come on in and testify. And then if they still refuse she can have them held in contempt and jailed until they testify. So that can be a lot more powerful, I think, than some of the gamesmanship that we've seen with the congressional subpoenas. Um, she may not want to do that, and it creates a little bit of a challenge uh, if there is a federal investigation going on at the same time. If she immunizes anybody in Georgia, that immunity uh, is effective for any other uh, court in the United States, whether it's federal or state. So she would be effectively precluding DOJ from using their testimony either. Now, it's not the end of the world, because all it means is you can't use their testimony against them. You can still use independent evidence to investigate them. So, um, you know, she may be coordinating with DOJ. I don't know. I mean, when I was a prosecutor, we frequently did coordinate with our state court counterparts because we wanted to work proactively together in a coordinated way. We didn't want to step on each other's investigations. So it may be that they're talking and sharing ideas about whether it's a good idea or a bad idea to immunize witnesses. But regardless, she's moving at a fast pace, which I think is a good thing because uh, I think you know people have grown frustrated by the lack of at least outward activity at the Justice Department.
2: You know, this issue of uh, immunizing witnesses was one that we faced during Watergate with the Senate committee, and we're very concerned about their giving any kind of immunity. Um, And in fact, it happened with John Dean. And in order to get him to plead guilty, we had to really dig deep to find something that they hadn't asked him about that we could still indict him for. And... It did complicate things. So, uh, you know, I'm just, I just want people to know it's not, it's just, it is a problem. Um, Kim, let's just maybe quickly talk about, with all the witnesses that have been subpoenaed, you have one senator, which is an unusual thing, and lawyers, all of them are lawyers. Um, So what do you think um, she is looking for and what hurdles does she face since Particularly for the lawyers and for a senator, a U.S. senator.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that there are a lot of as many hurdles as we think. I mean, yes, we, there are a lot of, you know, Giuliani and well, to the extent that he's a lawyer, uh, Jenna Ellis, John Eastman, all of these folks. These are people who were deeply who are deeply a part of this scheme to try to pressure. Uh, it seems um, the officials in Georgia to change the election uh, election results or get on board with the big lie. So I don't, there is no legal protection for an attorney to engage in lawlessness. If these things broke the laws of the state of Georgia, I don't think that there are that many impediments um, to her work here. What I think is very interesting is with Senator Graham. So he is a sitting senator. All these other folks are people who are a part of the Trump campaign and administration machine. They're a separate thing. Lindsey Graham is in office right now. And I think I I find it very interesting in thinking of um, this immunity because what can he do? He can, he has um, signaled after saying initially when asked about this, you know, give me a call. I'm happy to help however I can. Then once the subpoena started flying, his attorney uh, indicated that he's going to fight these subpoenas. So what is he going to do? Plead the fifth? How does that look? You know, a sitting senator goes and pleads the fifth to questions that he's asked about his efforts that, according to state officials, including Brad Raffensperger, said that he was a part of this effort to influence these people. So does he, does he testify under oath? Does he plead the fifth? This doesn't seem to end well for him in any way. Um, And so I think I'm very interested to see what goes forward here with him. Does he testify against his own interests Does he plead the fifth? I'm not sure um, any scenario is good. So I I will be, I will have the popcorn popped and see what the Senator does.
2: I'll I'll be wearing my popcorn pin to watch (laughs) the next hearings. The
0: pin for everything.
2: I definitely have a pin for everything. (laughs) It's going to be fun to watch. Um, And while we're laughing, um, we have Pat Cipollone, also known in the translation of his name as Patsy (laughs) Baloney, And in an arbitration that a good friend of mine had against him, the arbitrator kept calling him Mr. Silly Pony. So, spelled S-I-L-L-Y-P-O-N-Y. So poor Mr. Uh, White House Consul has a name that, is apparently hard for people to pronounce. Um, But hopefully what he says will be very quotable, and I'm hoping that we hear more about that at the next hearing on Tuesday.
0: Well, it was an interesting week in international news Uh, in terms of leaders. We saw the tragic and shocking assassination of the former prime minister, Abe, in Japan, which is a a terrible tragedy for the world. And then we also saw the resignation of Boris Johnson as prime minister of Great Britain. His resignation came after 53 members of his administration resigned in the two days prior to his resignation. And I'm wondering if there aren't any parallels there of, uh, (laughs) you know, a party finally giving up on its clown of a leader that we can Mm. draw from. Kim, what was it that finally caused him to lose the confidence of his ministers? Was it one thing or a series of
1: things? Yeah, it seemed to be more of a last straw. I mean, Boris Johnson was a controversial figure um, throughout a lot of things, including Brexit, but what brought him down was a good old-fashioned sex scandal. If, you, if you're like me and you're watching the series with you know, a very British scandal, that seems, yes. to, be, that seems to be in line <laughs> that this is something that was involved. So uh, one of uh, his, his – is, is it a cabinet in Britain? I'm sorry, I'm not as – Well, there is up. a cabinet, but there's okay. also well, one of his, his administration. Top aides, one of his top aides in his administration uh, named Chris Pincher um, – which I won't comment on his name, but was accused of sexual misconduct. And Boris Johnson lied, essentially. He lied and said that he didn't know anything about it and then later said he learned about it after the fact. Well, it turns out that he was aware of the investigation into it as it was going on. And then he lied about it. And so that was the last straw, which caused members of his own party to bail As you said, and that was seems like the likely now I've heard some rumblings that because he has resigned pending a further date um, that maybe he thinks that there's a way he may be able to backpedal out of it somehow, which I don't know. But at least at this point, as we're recording, he is resigning.
0: Yeah. You know, I have a friend who's visiting over there right now. and We've been texting in a, a group that texts and, um, you know, we've all become so numb, I think, to the misconduct of Donald Trump that our reaction was, wait, that's it? What else? Like, come on, really? That's it? <laughs> um, but it is, you know, as you said, a series of things, including mismanagement of COVID and his leadership of Brexit and a number of other things. So, um, well, Jill, let me ask you, do you see any parallels between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump that could give one hope?
2: I do see parallels, and I also see parallels with Richard Nixon. Mm. And those can't be skipped. I do think it was ultimately his character that brought him down. It was his lying that brought him down. Yes, there was a sex scandal involving a recent appointment of his, but it was the fact that he lied about knowing about it that was the final straw for members of his administration. And so when you look at it, You know, he resigned, which I liken to Nixon resigned. They were forced to it by members of their own party in both cases. The Republicans are the ones who forced Nixon to resign and the conservative party, the Tories, are the ones who forced Johnson to resign. Um, There is a mechanism in America called the 25th Amendment that could have been used to force Donald Trump out of office. Um, it didn't exist during Richard Nixon. It's a, mostly a result of Richard Nixon that we have a 25th Amendment. Um, but again, it was the lies and the cover-up. And when you ask, is there a parallel with Donald Trump, the lies of his lies don't seem to matter. Every lie that we've had, starting with going back to um I just grab when because I can, uh, you know the entertainment um, video that we had during the campaign. I thought, well, that's the end of his his campaign, but it wasn't. And every lie since then, including the big lie or even the big ripoff, doesn't seem to matter to the people supporting him. So I don't know that there is a parallel that would force him to resign. Unlike Richard Nixon, he doesn't seem to have any shame, which I would liken to Boris Johnson, who even in his resignation did not apologize. It's considered a very tacky resignation speech uh, by the Brits. If you listen to BBC News, they are not uh, admiring of it. Um, But it, it wasn't because he lacked vision or that he stole money it really was the lies and the constant lies that brought him down. So I I, I think in terms of an, a, a comparison to Donald Trump, I don't know that any of those lies are going to bring down Donald Trump. I think it's going to take something much more than that, like an indictment under 2383, which would require that he not run again. It would bar him from ever running. That's the only statute that has a specific penalty of jail and disqualification from running for office. Um, So that's my take on it, is that it's as similar to Richard Nixon as anything, and that I wish in America that our political leaders would stand up to constant lies and say we've had enough. But so far, the Republican Party has been unwilling and totally silent on this.
0: Yeah, have you guys ever read that book, Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell? Yes. It's it's a good book, and it talks about um, how, you know, there are all these uh, facts constantly bubbling around in the world, but then at some point certain facts uh, rise to such a level that people collectively kind of take notice of them and it reaches what he calls a tipping point and suddenly something that seemed insignificant before now matters and everybody's on board and in agreement with this sort of thing. You know, like drunk driving was just sort of a thing that people accepted. And then at some point, Mothers Against Drunk Driving started pushing, you know, against it. And suddenly it reached the tipping point where everybody said, oh, my gosh, you're right. This is horrible. We've got to stop this and we need to enact laws. And I wonder. It seems like the tipping point was reached in in England, and I wonder if it's possible for that to happen in the U.S. Cam, let me ask you about you know Johnson's speech, which um, Jill mentioned there. He he explained that he was resigning not because of his performance, or you know that he had done anything wrong. He didn't acknowledge any fault, but because the quote herd had turned on him, which I think is a really negative way to describe his constituents, right, or or his uh, his ministers. Do you think that members of uh, the Republican Party in the U.S. would ever see this as a wake up call and say, huh, you can get rid of the buffoon if you can get the herd behind you? Do you, do you think that that's a possibility? Do, have any Republicans read Tipping Point?
1: That's interesting <laughs> that you frame it in that way. When I heard uh, Boris Johnson say that to me, it sounded like the British equivalent of uh, this is cancel culture. Like I didn't do anything wrong, it's this cancel culture of being cancelled. It found it I think it's the opposite. I think it's evidence of what we see here in the United States of not taking personal responsibility but blaming, making yourself a victim of something. Um Making yourself a victim of the herd, of cancel culture, of wokeness, of mm-hmm. all this other stuff, and that it wasn't actually him accepting responsibility, saying that I did something wrong. Um, I do think it's very Nixon-like in that way, and certainly very Trump-like um, in that way. So no, I don't. I don't expect Republicans to learn anything. Um, About this, I would say, if anything, particularly those who are the Trumpiest, would say, oh, well, you know, Trump said never apologize. Trump said never back down. And Boris Johnson is backing down. uh, And he's weak. not really being. Just shows how weak he is. Yeah, he's weak. (laughs) So I think that's going to be the lesson. I I, I don't see anything Mm. around. And I think what Boris Johnson is trying to do is maybe preserve a chance for his comeback, by failing to accept any responsibility here and just blaming others for his own downfall. He and Chris Cuomo, right? They'll be on the same ticket. Mm, (laughs) Exactly. Well, let's talk about a
0: happier prospect, which is this, Jill. Some names that are emerging as possible successors um, include a lot of women and people of color. I mean, it's a really multicultural list of people. And of course, you know, in uh, Great Britain, they had their first woman prime minister back in the 80s with Margaret Thatcher, Why can Britain do what we can't seem to do in this country, which is to promote talent regardless of race and gender?
2: You know, that's such a great question. And Margaret Thatcher is not the only one. They also had Theresa Mm -hmm. May. And it's also true throughout Europe. Look at how many women are prime ministers, And, and not just Europe, Australia, New Zealand. It's quite amazing, and yet... We are way far behind and we don't have the Equal Rights Amendment, which is along with gun rights or gun control, gun safety measures, is my new focus of my political activity is making sure that the Equal Rights Amendment becomes part of the Constitution. It has been affirmed and ratified by the requisite number of states. I don't know what it is about other cultures. Um, One of my first assignments for Motorola was in Pakistan. And before I left for the trip, I read a book about Pakistan and went to my boss and said, I think you should send someone else. There's a whole chapter here that says, women cannot, shall not, must not, will not. And I don't want to fail just because I'm a woman. He did not replace me. I had to go. And it turned out that they actually had Benazir Bhutto, who became the prime minister while I was there. So even in a country that does not value women because of their religious uh, theories, had a woman leader. And I really can't answer your question, honestly. There is no reason why in America, where women are a majority, not a big majority, but we actually are more than 50% of the population, why we can't elect one of our own, uh, and we have highly qualified candidates that would fit that uh, I mean, I'm impressed by some of the names that are being floated in England um, as potential replacements, and as you mentioned, at least two of those are women, um, and many of them are people of color um, so Why England and not us? We share a lot in common in terms of our culture and heritage. I don't know. I'd be curious to hear you and Kim give me some reasons why we can't and Britain can. Can't think of a good
0: one.
2: (laughs) I'm stumped. Isn't that terrible? Okay, so let's hear from our listeners about why you think we are failing, and not just the UK, but other countries, have long had female leaders all throughout the continents, uh, Africa, Australia. I mean, many have had women leaders. And we so far have gotten as far as vice president, but we haven't had a president. And it's time. We've had a secretary of state. We've had more than one secretary. We've had three secretaries of state, but it's time, folks. So let us know what you think.
0: Well, now we come to the part of the show that is our absolute favorite. We love getting questions from our listeners. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question comes to us from Donna in Connecticut who asks, would you please discuss the independent state legislature theory that SCOTUS will be hearing in their next term
1: and how quickly this could unravel how states currently run their elections? Yeah, I can take a stab at that. So I I love how you called it a theory. It's often called the independent state legislature doctrine, as if it's a thing. But it really is I called it that last week and you corrected me, and I
0: stand corrected. Yeah,
1: it really is. It is. It it is a very... um, not mainstream theory that basically holds that because the Constitution and the Elections Clause gives the power to administer uh, time, place, and manner regulation of, election, of elections to the state, quote, legislature. Use, the Constitution uses the word legislature. There are folks that are trying to take that to its most extreme conclusion and say that only state Lawmakers can be in charge of how elections are administered, not state courts, so state courts can't review the actions of the legislature, and also not state election officials, secretaries of state, election committees, governor, (laughs) nobody else has any say in this, which is ridiculous. That's never been the way that elections have been carried out. But the fact that the Supreme Court granted certiorari to consider this question is alarming to me if they rule in favor of uh, North Carolina Republican lawmakers who are bringing this challenge, who are trying to implement gerrymandered congressional districts. That could open the door to the kind of coup that we saw try to take place in places like Pennsylvania, where Republicans tried to prevent the, the votes from being counted uh, in that state and you know, Arizona and other places where they were trying to even send false electors to Washington. It could really strip state courts of their ability to say, no, no, this violates our state constitution. You can't do that um, if, they, if the court adopts the, the very broad reading of this theory. Then that could happen. So it, it's very dangerous. I'm hoping that Congress acts. In the meantime, they can act to make very clear that that's not what the Constitution means, but that would mean some bipartisan action and at least a temporary um, removal of the filibuster. So we'll see if members of Congress really understand what the stakes are and how important this is.
0: Our next question comes to us from Samantha in Burlington, Vermont. And she wants to know about... President Biden's new executive order on abortion and whether that will make any meaningful difference in the lives of uh, Americans. Jill, what do you think about that? So I think like the
2: gun law that was passed, it's a good start and it's essential. It's not enough. I, I think we can post in our show notes the fact sheet about the executive order, but it does a lot of interesting things, which includes maintaining the right to travel because some states are trying to protect uh, against having an abortion or prevent having an abortion by preventing anyone from traveling from a state that bars it to a state that allows it. And the government has said the right to travel is sacrosanct and we will protect that. They are also going to try to protect other reproductive health care services, including contraception. And They're working on protecting the privacy because a lot of, if you go online and you're researching where can I get an abortion or where is abortion legal, it's possible that the state will get that information and be able to use it against you at a trial. And they are going to also try to make sure that um, federal employees, for example, are given time off if they have to travel out of state. So they've taken a a wide variety of things that it's too long to list in this answer. Um, and medicated abortion is one of the big ones. That It's the last one that I'll mention, um, where the right to obtain a totally safe uh, and a method that is used in about half of all abortions in America now, which is the medicated abortion, um, that that will remain available to people who are pregnant in states that have banned abortion, that you can order the drug from another doctor out of state. So those are some of the things that it does. And yes, that will definitely help. Is it enough? No. Do they have to work on a federal uh, encoding of Roe versus Wade? Yes, they do.
0: All right. Our final question comes to us from at PA Maureen. Is a subpoena from another state enforceable? If so, how? I want to answer this question because I had this question myself earlier in the week um, when we see Fonnie Willis issuing grand jury subpoenas for all of these witnesses in Trump world who live all over the place. Giuliani's from New York, Eastman's from California. How does she have subpoena power to call them in Georgia? You know, as a former Fed, we had uh, subpoena power that extended throughout the whole United States. Um, So I didn't know the answer, but I looked it up and there is something called the Uniform Act to Secure the Attendance of Witnesses from Without a State in Criminal Proceedings. And it does permit state prosecutors to use subpoenas to compel testimony from out-of-state witnesses. But there is a procedure for that, and you may notice that she had to go to a court to get a finding that they were important witnesses. Uh, She couldn't just issue it and have them come there the way they're typically done. She had to uh, provide a motion and a certificate for the judge to show that the witness's testimony is materially required. So she did that, and the judge did issue those subpoenas, and that's how we know uh, who those witnesses are. And does the
2: state have to pay the transportation to bring those witnesses to Georgia?
0: I don't know, but I have to believe they do. You know, you typically pay witness expenses whenever they're uh, traveling in the federal system. We always pay witness expenses, travel, hotel, and the like. So I have to believe that that is uh, part of uh, the compensation for a witness to travel. In fact, there's often a witness fee, too. It's not much. It's, yes, Um <laughs> you know, $40 a day or something. Um, yes, Jill, looking at the law right now, it does say that a witness is entitled to transportation and lodging expenses, as well as a Thank standard you, witness fee. <laughs> Bravo. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Winebanks, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Barb McQuaid. We missed Joyce this week, but she'll be back with us soon. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag SistersInLaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea, hoodie, and other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, Thuma, Olive and June, HelloFresh, and FrameBridge. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. Boy, you guys, off the record, I know that, you know, all of us have moments of weakness where we utter foul words that we wish we, we didn't. But I, I really am interested in this idea of not normalizing these words that I find to be really misogynist. Um, I bet Joyce, what do you think Joyce
1: would say? Bless your heart. <laughs> I don't know. I bet you, short. listen, I, haven't, I have not had drinks with Joyce, but I bet you she could drop a four-letter word with the best of them. That'd be my
2: guess, too. I, I can hear it coming from her nice, genteel
0: lips. Exactly. I really can. Wait, so you mean that Joyce would be on your side and not mine? Yes. Yes. F*** that b- <laughs> <laughs>